Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast. I am blessed to have Erica Spielman with me, author, man of two books, Rewired, and The Rewired Life. One came out in 2015, one came out in 2019. You are a corporate guru. You are counseling. Your main focus is general wellness. Yes. Specialized in addiction. Yes, my training is um, in addiction therapy. I love that. But you're a wealth of information. And when I started checking you out on Facebook, I noticed that you work with individuals and couples, recovery groups, corporate teams in person with COVID. Of course, we all had to go to the virtual realm. Yeah. How has that been for you? Well, it's been really nice, actually. I I kind of went with my private practice, my clients that I talk to every week. I went to Zoom and FaceTime with them and, and phone sessions when I was pregnant, actually, with my first child. So I started doing it a little before COVID. And then when I kind of, you know, switched over, I think it's really great to connect with people via FaceTime, just like you and I are looking at each other now. I think it's it's super intimate and it creates like, you know, vulnerability you know, that you get in person too. And then also I have a lot of clients that are, you know, want to do phone sessions and they're like on the car or they want to take a walk and talk at the same time. So it, it gives us that flexibility. But with the corporate wellness that um, wellness workshops I've been doing for companies, it's great because their employees sometimes are scattered and obviously no one's been going into a workspace. So it's been uh, really nice. I felt lonely, I guess, the past couple months too. So it was nice for me to meet new people. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because a lot of people think that COVID has really put a damper on us. And I think it, in a way it's actually helped with mental health, Yeah, you know, being able to talk to you on a screen, it's personal, but it also gives me that barrier a little bit, a little bit of barrier. I can tell you the deep, dark secrets. I don't know. Like we made that heart connection yet. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I think, I think in general, I feel like people are going to kind of be used to this now. I mean, this is always human nature, right? I was talking about this last couple nights with my husband, like the bubble we've created, the new routines we've created, not having to be super social. Like it's kind of, you know, it's been nice for some people, like for myself, I haven't had time to be social with two little babies. And so now it's kind of like, oh, wow, are we going to be asked out to dinners now? Are we going to have to like, you know, we, we have different kind of obligations that are going to be opening back up to us. I think as people get vaccinated more and things open up more. So it's, I think it's going to be another time of transition and change for people. Totally. So I know before the podcast, we talked a little bit about professional life. So I come from law enforcement background. When we're talking about communication, it's really hard for us to make a connection with somebody, right? It's really hard for, for example, to be- law enforcement, you mean? Yeah. Someone that's culturally competent, I guess- when we talk about in law enforcement, I remember I was in a shooting and it was What December. did you do in law enforcement? I'm just curious. Oh man, I worked undercover. That was okay. kind so of you're my- a police officer. Yes. You started yes. as a police officer. Okay. I did. And so I was actually medically retired from the police department because of being run over. So I had some pretty severe wow. injuries. But I remember when we, I kind of would have rather done it online because I went to this guy so I could get cleared to come back to work. And I looked at the guy, I'm like, oh man, this guy, he's never even been in a fight before. Like he's never been punched, right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm already making this assessment of- You can't relate. Yeah. No, and it was really hard for me. And I think it may have been easier for me to relate this way. And mm. so I do think that, that that bridge is being crossed a little bit better by virtual communication. 
Yeah, you know, it it gives people the option to, you know, like they don't have to sit and chat longer, you know. But I also feel like, you know, in general, like if you got hit and you went through a traumatic injury and you were, you know, you had some PTSD around that. And, and, you know, like I think in general, just going to professionals that can relate to you are helpful just in general. So, I mean, maybe it was true. Maybe you just felt like he couldn't relate. I mean, I know for me, I've been sober myself for 14 years. And when my clients come to me to get help, become sober, get on a healthy path. You know, it does help that I've been in the darkness. It does help to kind of, I walk the walk. I mean, my, my personal life and professionally. So I, when I'm kind of offering in terms of tools and coping skills is what I use myself. So, you know, at least that gives us kind of a commonality. So I think that if anybody is listening and looking for help professionally, whether online or in person, it does get a background where that, where you would feel that person would understand you helps. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the age old questions. So, you know, everybody's listening into this. I'm like, okay, how did Erica get sober? How was mm-hmm. she staying sober? And I know mm-hmm. it's in your book, but I want you to like, if you don't mind sharing us, so we can kind of push people to the book because there are some amazing tools in it. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think when I was, so when I, when I actually finally chose, which I, I always call it a choice, you know, it wasn't, it was the most empowering moment when I was like, I can create any life I really want, you know, it was just like, but how do I get there? And so I, I got help. I actually went to treatment and I think getting out of my environment, I mean, we have to get out of our own way. Like I, you know, I kept trying myself, but the brain that gets you to the problem is not the brain that's going to get you out of the problem. We need our, we need our brains to heal. I mean, that's why I wrote the book entitled it Rewired, because literally it's about creating new pathways. Like when you change your habits, you change your life, you change your identity. It's about, again, thought habits. So, you know, like for me, positive self-talk, getting rid of all toxic people in my life, creating boundaries, learning what boundaries were, and I got all that kind of in treatment. And then I started, you know, researching it myself and listening to podcasts and reading books. And then I went back to school to UCLA and I, and I enrolled and I took, you know, then I graduated and took tons of classes on psychology and pharmacology and all that stuff and learned about the brain. But I, I think the way I did it was getting myself on a routine. Every night I went to bed at the same time, woke up in the morning, you know, nutritiously, but planned what I was going to eat. You know, I had non-negotiables for myself, like no, no people that were negative. If it was family, which I can't get rid of family. Family. I had to learn how to communicate and, and, and set up boundaries for myself, you know, and telling my mom, like, hey, when you guilt me, I'm going to hang up the phone. Or if my dad started yelling, like, if you raise your voice, I'm going to walk out of the room. I prefer you to please speak to me calmly now. Like, I can have this in my life, right? So I didn't want any extra stress. It's about creating, you know, so taking the four cornerstones of self-care, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, and creating a routine around that, honoring those four things every day as you get sober. And if AA works for you, great. If that's fine too, there's a path for everybody. Man, yeah. I feel like I'm talking to myself a little bit because I hear the same, like, I love this because people always say they feel like recovery and they feel like addiction is a death sentence. Oh, no. oh, oh man, I'm going to, I'm going to be an addict for life. Uh, I'm right. an alcoholic. I got to go to AA and tell people, Hey, I'm Brock. I'm a recovering addict. Right. And they just ingrain this. Yeah. Right. And I love what you said about creating routines. That's what I teach my guys. I'm like, listen, guys, here we go. Yeah. Create routines to where it's so it becomes so ingrained that you don't have time for anything else. No, because that's the new pathways I was just talking about. You know, I mean, it was so interesting when I finally walked in a grocery store, I think it was like less than a year into my sobriety. And I, I started focusing on cooking like great healthy stuff and going to farmer's markets and my interests changed, my identity changed. I was running every day. I started running two months into my sobriety. I run a block and two blocks and three blocks before I knew it. I signed up for a 10 K I did that. 
I did a marathon eventually, you know, small steps, but I then was like, I'm a runner. My identity shifted. I'm not, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm a runner now. I'm a healthy woman now, you know? And, and when those things finally dawn on you, that your identity like internally changes is really the, the most ultimate freedom. And I feel so grateful that, you know, I'm still that woman. And I, and I had that opportunity for those things to kind of take root. But like you said, the only way they can is with repetitive action, you know, like, every day, the same kind of honorable things that you can do for yourself, you know, honoring who you are. Man, I, that is powerful Yeah, to be able to, because I, I feel like a lot of us believe that this is who we are rest oh, of my right. life and right. the behaviors I'm going to carry. And like, you're talking about changing an identity. So when you came out of rehab, you can come out whoever you want to be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I tell my clients too, I, I work with a treatment center online. So I, a good friend of mine owns a treatment center. I worked with him. He was my boss for years. Uh, I do groups for treatment centers. I, I come in and do my rewired groups. I have workbooks, by the way. I have two workbooks for one for each book. And so the workbooks, a lot of treatment centers use because they could use it for groups or they could use it for individual therapy. And I was talking to the clients in my group last Friday. I do it once a week now on through zoom. I do groups at treatment centers now on, on through zoom. And I said to them, like, get going while you're in treatment. This is when you need to get up, eat a mm -hmm. healthy breakfast, go take a walk, yoga, whatever. And you know, I think they needed to hear that. Cause some of them were like, well, I still don't eat breakfast. I have a coffee. I don't eat till noon. I was like, let's change it today. And let's get on this while you're in this great environment to like, let this flourish, you know? Yeah. Perfect. Talk to me about your non-negotiables. That is hard to teach people. Yeah. But yeah. so talk to me about what became your non-negotiables and are they the same today as they were when you got out of treatment? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that they've shifted maybe a little bit. I think I was, you know, I was 20, almost 28 when I got sober and I'm 41 now. So it's been, you know, I, my whole thirties, thank God I've had that decade sober and a little bit of each, you know, a couple of years on each end, but I definitely think they're the same in terms of my own self-care. I think making sure I sleep, eat and exercise or move in some way, non-negotiable every day. Even if it's just a 10 minute walk, if I have no time, I take a 10 minute walk or else I usually take an hour for myself to exercise every day, walk, hike, nothing too strenuous, but just at least I have enough time for that. Sleeping too, I try to get six to eight hours non-negotiable to the point where I, I really will turn down invitations to like go out to a big party that's going to be late. I mean, just for the fact that I, I want to exercise the next day, I want to feel good. I want to eat well. And I know those choices aren't going to really take place if I am tired and exhausted, you know? When it comes to, I think, my non-negotiables with relationships, which I think is very important to talk about, those obviously have changed and grown. Like, I think I've grown in the sense of like learning who I am more and more as I get older and be more confident in who I am. So when I was first sober, I, I think I, my boundaries, I knew what boundaries were and I had them, but I think now they become even more solidified. Like, you know, if you betray me or belittle me or lie to me, like, that's it. You know, like I, I really have very little wiggle room when it comes to that, because I don't want this pain, the stress, the anxiety. And if really you, if you're going to betray me, you're probably betraying yourself and you're probably a, a, a lower vibrating person that I don't really want to be around. And I don't want to be around people that are hurting others, hurting themselves. It's just, unless it's obviously people struggling with addiction, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's just lying to you as a, as a friendship or a, a romantic relationship is not necessary, you know? All right, Eric, I'm going to throw this out there to you because this is, this is important. I want to hear just, this is your opinion and I value it. I, I find it's very important. I think there's a lot of people that can be able to, to look at you and understand that you have a lot of credibility behind it. 
What do you think about the one year wait period before getting into a relationship? I don't think that is a rule. I mean, I mean, I, for, for myself personally, I think the intention behind that rule was good. You know, I mean, whoever, whoever came up with this or AA says that, I think everyone, we all individually are different. And, you know, some of us actually heal through relationships and we learn a lot about ourselves. So, I mean, I wouldn't hop in a relationship month one of your sobriety, but I mean, I think if, you know, you're seven months in, eight months in and someone comes along and they're, they're in a good place too, you know, I got engaged. I think two years after my sobriety and it didn't work out. And I, and I broke up that engagement, but it was an award. It was with a wonderful person and it just wasn't right for me. And I, I made that choice out of kind of fear and, uh, out of my old ways of thinking is my point. Cause it was close to the time I got sober. And I realized then like, this is not honoring myself. And, and I know, and now looking back it was like, wow, I was still just clearing out some things emotionally, you know? And, and I think that that's important. People realize when they're getting sober or trying out relationships, it's to just learn about yourself, be curious, be open-minded. Not everything has to work out. You know, you don't have to put pressure on yourself. Where does the emotional awareness come in? I think emotional awareness for me has come through a place of just being brutally honest with myself and allowing myself to feel like I, I would ignore certain feelings when I was in relationships with people. I would talk myself out of it. Like, like for instance, you know, I was kind of felt like I was walking on eggshells with somebody, like everything I do was kind of scrutinized or looked at. And I was, and I'm a very laid back kind of easygoing person. And so for me, I was like, I don't really like that quality. Like, I feel like I have to put the forks in the right place or put this in the right place. And I'm not like that, you know? And, and so for me, I feel a little nervous around this person. And I was like, I don't, I'm happy. I'm actually feeling this. I'm not drinking my way through it. I'm not like numb to what's going on, which always happens if you're in relationships when you're in active addiction. But so for the, at this moment in time, I just said, you know, I can't, this is not authentic. I can't be my authentic self. So if I'm compromising my authentic self, I have to go. And so that's really it. You know, I think I finally realized when my authenticity is not being honored is when, even if it's with work, like I'm working for somebody, I don't agree with their morals, let's say, which has happened. I quit my job once, you know, because for me, like authenticity is my North star. It's my guiding light as, as in terms of a value in my life. And so I think too, being emotionally aware of that. And that's why in my book, The Rewired Life, I have a chapter on values because it's really important. We get clear on our top three values. And then we can use that as kind of like, does this person have the same values? Does this job kind of values? Does this friend that I've had for 20 years, even though they're a great old friend, Maybe we're not the same anymore. We're not, we don't have the same values. So I think it's a good way to kind of gauge things. So, so from your expertise, are you saying it's okay to kind of steer clear of those individuals that don't carry the same values as you? I personally love people from all walks of life and I appreciate them. And just because you're different doesn't, doesn't mean we have different values, but it's just, if somebody, you know, for instance, believes that talking crap and you know, gossiping and kind of low vibrating behavior that is, that put, makes people uncomfortable or if they bark at people at a restaurant that are working that, you know, maybe not having compassion the way you've come back. It's just for me, it's, I don't think we need to be with people that, you know, don't, don't kind of value kindness and certain qualities in life. Yeah. I love that low vibrating behaviors. I know. I just say that because, you know, I, I don't know if everyone would understand that, but I just, I mean, like, you know, I think energy, we're all energy. And I think people that let's say are an active addiction, they could be the best. I mean, I know the best people that are addicts, you know, it's not about that, but it's about, and I think we could all, anybody that's gone through a dark period could say that their vibration, their energy was lower because 
if we're taking drugs and alcohol, we're harming ourselves, our bodies, our minds, right? We're ruining relationships. We're not remembering what we do. I would say things I'm so ashamed of the next day. I didn't even remember being mean to somebody or I see a text that I don't remember, you know, and things like that, where it's like, I'm really not my highest self. I'm not, the, I'm not, this. I'm betraying myself every day on top of it all, you know? And so that's what I mean by vibrations is the energy that we give off, you know? Yeah. So how long did it take you once you recover? I know you have some long-term sobriety on your belt, but as you work with new clients and new, new individuals in sobriety, what are some building blocks that you're giving them to kind of reestablish who they're going to become? Because like you said, we can come out as anybody we want to be, mm-hmm. but it's important that self-love, that self-respect to honor yourself. Those are all super clear values. So how do you teach people and where do you have them go? Like internally to find those building blocks. So usually we start with kind of our narrative. Like, so with my new newer clients, like I'll, I'll just to get to know you, like Brock would say, and we're getting to know each other. I'd say to you, you know, tell me a little bit about your family growing up and and maybe who was around you, you know, and then we go through kind of an exercise around narratives of like, what was a man, you know, usually, so let's say I have a man and a woman that raised me, a mother and father, right? My parents divorced when I was seven. So, you know, what we see is kind of what's mirrored to us is kind of our first reality in life, right? And so my father, who I love, I'm very close with, he was 25 when he had me. So he was young, right? And he was running around still, he was out drinking every night. He's, you know, and so for me, and not maybe very trustworthy when he was younger. And so for me, it was like, I thought all men were like that. You know, I mean, at least that was my narrative around men, right? And then divorced when I was seven. And my narrative around relationships was about, oh, you fight, you get divorced, you can't trust, you can't, you know, nothing is reliable. And, and, and again, that was my narrative kind of around relationships. And it took me into my 20s to kind of figure out that that's really not a, not a healthy relationship. I don't need to choose that, you know? And so we go through all of this with my clients to just to kind of see what we need to change, what stories we have to change, because our thoughts are really what I think sustainably keeps us sober and happy and growing and, you know, sticking to a healthy path or our thoughts can lead us back down, you know, the wrong path. And so our narratives and our stories and what we say to ourselves every day and our, and our self-talk and that to me is the foundation, you know, and then we can build from there. So I do that. And then, then I just, what you and I talked about was like, what's our routine in the present day and getting rid of relationships maybe that aren't, if you're with somebody that is still actively drinking a lot, or, you know, even if you're married to that person, that's okay. We can get through it, but we need to kind of look at our lives, you know? All right, Eric, I'm going to ask for a therapy session really fast. You're ready for this. So I have five children. Wow. Uh, one of my daughters, yeah, one of my daughters is in college. Okay. She, she's taken on a, well, I'm a grandpa times two oh, already. Yeah. Amazing. Just hit my birthday, 49th birthday on Saturday. So. Oh, you're so young. Yeah, I, right, right. So, but what's funny is I also, I'm, I'll just say this, what pretty much destroyed my family from my opioid addiction early on. Mm-hmm. to where they grew up. I mean, I was involved, but I was that Disneyland father where yeah. when I got them every other weekend, yeah. we had a blast. I didn't give them chores. You know what I'm saying? I mean, right. I, I tried. Right. I was projecting. I was doing everything I could to fix that past behavior and that childhood trauma in them. So yeah. let's fast forward. My daughter's in college. She's in a serious relationship. She has a young man that that is absolutely in love with her. And now she's kind of wavering back and forth, whether this is real. Mm-hmm. Is this guy telling me the truth? You know, because the childhood trauma is so big. Yeah. You know, so how do you speak to these children? How do you speak to these addicts that 
have this childhood childhood trauma to talk to them and say, hey, trust the system. You're improving. You're not your dad or not everybody's like your dad or not everybody's going to care those same behaviors. How do you talk to them? Well, I mean, I would say just that I would sit your daughter down and say, you know, I want to talk about your narrative around relationships and men, honestly, and just say, you know, I own the fact that I maybe wasn't there, a reliable, let's say consistent person or a man like in your life. And I don't, I, I just, you know, you, you choose whoever is right for you, but I just want to make sure to bring this up and give you some feedback that, you know, I think maybe it's your hesitancy is about, you know, past stories that you have around what relationships are about. But, you know, I think if you really love this person, give them a chance to heal that part of you. I mean, I think also the beautiful thing which you could talk to her about too is, you know, for me, I, I married a man, my husband is the opposite of my father. And I think it took me a long time to kind of actually feel comfortable with someone like that because I felt more comfortable with someone like my dad because that was all I knew, you know, and I love my dad. And, but for me, that was more of the kind of man I was used to. And so we were drawn to things that feel familiar to us. So again, that's why people are like, wow, I'm marrying someone just like my father or just like my mother. Right. But again, it's like, that's not the best person for me emotionally. And I knew that it took me a while to kind of come to that realization. So just have a conversation with her and she could always call me and we can, (laughs) you know, I love that. So how important is self-love in recovery? Well, that's it. I would say actually that's the foundation. It's everything. That's if you love yourself, anything can happen. You know, I mean, again, like I I read this book by Teek Nhat Hanh, who's this great Buddhist monk who wrote a book called You Are Here and is all about mindfulness and self-compassion. And it changed my life when I was, it was my first year of sobriety. I read it and he's still alive. He's in his nineties to this day. He's, he's a beautiful man and very wise. And, you know, he just says like to speak to yourself, like kindly, like you are a wonderful person. Good job that you made your bed today. You know, I'm adding my own uh, things, but so that's what I would do when I got sober. I, I, I would say like for my head at the pillow and I like, good job. You took a shower today. I mean, cause these were things I didn't do. You know, you made your bed today. You you ate three meals today. You, I mean, and I would sit and cry out of, I mean, really of deep gratitude because I couldn't get there when I was in active addiction, you know? And so for me, it was just, and I still feel the, like the deepest gratitude that I have come from out of that hole where I remember one day in my, the end of my sobriety, I mean, the end of my addiction, I was like, yeah, I said out loud, like, God, how do I get out of this? You know, I mean, it was, I felt so hopeless and I felt like it was, I didn't know how to climb out of this dark hole and and the light found the way, you know, and uh, to me, and I, and I think God had the courage to step in and go to it, but I still feel that like gratitude that my life has changed to what it is now, you know? And also, can I say one more thing? The practice of gratitude, I think, is really important for people to hear. Every morning for the first seven years of my sobriety, I mean, now I kind of do it at night because I'm kids and it's busy, but I, every morning would have a reflection for five to 10 minutes and really dive deep on what I was grateful for. I love that. So what's key, other than your children, your husband, what's keeping you sober today? Oh, wow. Well, you know, they keep me sober, but I think I keep myself sober because even before them, I won't betray myself. You know, I mean, that that number one, what keeps me sober is just I, I think that the strength I feel when I'm healthy, you know, just just being able to get through life emotionally. I mean, you know, I've had my dad got sick years ago. I didn't drink over it. You know, he was hospitalized for three months. You know, I've, I've had, you know, a lot of stuff go on in my sobriety and I know I can get through it. So I don't want to sacrifice, even if it's a 1% chance I, I could drink and I wouldn't have a problem, which I'm sure I wouldn't, you know, actually, I'm sure I could have a drink and it would be fine, but I don't want to even take out that chance. And I think my, my counseling and being somebody's counselor and being that that voice for them, it holds me accountable too. So I think yeah. it's important I do the work for myself 
in my personal life and actual work professionally. You have some sober time under your belt. Yeah. You still, do you still have triggers? Yeah. All the time. I think, I mean, exhaustion. I mean, I have, you know, I have a two-year-old and a one-year-old and uh, I'm tired and, you know, there's stress with work and this pandemic, you know, all this stuff, everyone's gone through this. Um, So I think, yeah, I, I definitely, when I'm t- exhausted, I get triggered that way. I try to keep my relationships very clean so I don't have stress from outside people. You know, like just a small group of people I love and trust and know that they're not going to act funny. But yeah, I think that's probably the trigger the most is just sheer exhaustion. And that's why sleep is really important to me too. Like when I feel like I don't sleep, I get shaky in the morning. I, you know, and I, I remember when I was drinking, I mean, that would be what I would do is just drink if I was, and I was always exhausted because I stayed up till five in the morning, you know? So you change your habits, you change your routines, you change your behaviors. You, you kind of have this rebirth, this new identity, these new routines. Yeah. And you set up your non-negotiables. And I love that. So if anybody's out there hearing this, I mean, it's not impossible. It's not, it's not a death sentence. It's, it's no. addiction. It's a gift. It's a gift, honestly. I mean, I, I truly am blessed to have gone through my addiction now in retrospect, you know, um, I, I would not be the person I am today. And, and I want everybody to, I mean, and I went to wrote the books I've written and, you know, my path all came together as a literature major and undergraduate for my bachelor's. I was, that's what I did was, I was, you know, I was a writer. I love to write. And little did I know that these two passions of mine would merge. And so just people in their twenties, they're young or thirties or forties, it doesn't matter how old you are. Just have faith that if you choose health and you choose wellness and you choose self-love and sobriety, if you're dealing with addiction, then your life will fall together so fast. It really will. And there will be a clear purpose, you know? I like that. So how scary was it to write a book? It was scary. It was very, I felt very vulnerable, obviously. I, I But, you know, I said to myself when I was writing it, if one person, I don't give a crap, one person reads it, that'll be enough. You know, if it changes one life, honestly, that would be enough. And, you know, and I and I, I was walking in New York City with a friend of mine from college. And I said to her, I think I'm going to write a book. And the minute I said it out loud, it held me accountable to do you it. You were like, what? Yeah, yeah, let me take it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I said it to her and and I don't know, for some reason, it just like, it came from forth from there. And I, you know, I, I got, I sent the manuscript into many publishers and got no, 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 until I got a yes. So again, you can't give up. There's the right person for you. It was an amazing journey. I'm, I was, yeah, I wish I could do it all over again. Cause in those moments, you know, like when you're first attempting something, you're again, you're more nervous or you're scared or you're, there's fear around it. But again, it was such a blessing. Biggest epiphany in your books, one or book one or two. Epiphany in the book or writing the book? Writing the book. I think it was just, I think writing my second book, The Rewired, the Rewired Life, I that was written for the general public because Rewired did really well in the um, recovery genre. And on Amazon, it was, you know, it still does very well. And, and so my publishers wanted, and people would write me on Amazon or, or even just write me in general and say, you know, I got out of a relationship, but Rewired really helped me. Or I, was, I had cancer and I was, you know, recovering and the, the book was very helpful, although I'm not an addict, you know? And so I kept getting that. And so I said, I need to write a book for like Rewired, but for the general public that doesn't say addiction on the cover, you know, that, so the Rewired life was about our technology habits, nutrition, sleep. So I, I learned a lot. I did a lot of research with the Mayo Clinic on sleep. So I know a lot about sleep now. Nutrition too, like a banana. Do you know it's like the perfect food in the whole world? There's like, like it's so good for you. I learned a lot about technology habits and, and how it's really getting in the way of our happiness. And so there's a whole chapter on technology, the good, the bad, and the, the good, the bad, and the ugly in that chapter. And so it was cool to write the second book and have it more for, for the general public because there was new topics that I learned about. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole nother podcast. Yeah. Because I know when I came off opioids, I had a cross addiction and most of us do. And what was right? that? Sex. Okay. Pornography. Yeah. 
Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. So when when that came down, that went up until I until I figured out, you know, like I had to get that rewired in the brain. Yeah. I, I had to. Now it's working out. So you just it just doesn't go away because you got to fill time with something. Right. And I know a lot of us have put our time into that technology. You're right. I think that has been. Yeah. I mean, I think working out for me too, not working out, but running and that that filled that in the beginning of my sobriety. And now I don't know. I don't have time for anything. So I don't know what what fills that. But I, I think, again, the, the, the honoring my, my body, my mind and all that. Yeah. But for you, I know what you mean. It's just uh, it, this technology stuff is just we don't know about it. You know, I mean, now we're finally understanding the manipulate the manipulation, I'll say. But um, it's so deep. Yeah, I would love to talk to you about that another time. Maybe maybe our next podcast, the, the part two. But yeah. I really appreciate your time. I know you're super busy. Thank you. Uh, I know yeah. you got, but but I really do value your information. Thank and, you. Thank, and thank you for you. having me. It's been yeah. such a nice pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. And and uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to contact you again. I'm sure my listeners will send me questions. And yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm gonna throw the invite out there to you to ha- to do this again. Of course, I'd love to. Thank you, Erica. Appreciate you. Have a great okay. day. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcast to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.